Our text this morning will be Isaiah, the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter 11. Something that uh, you probably have already read this season, or you will in a Christmas card. Um, other passages that we've touched upon. Uh, this is the season that we refer to as, uh, as Advent, which means a, a coming. Um, it has to do with the incarnation. It has to do with uh, the Christmas celebration. It's obviously much bigger than that. Uh, when we think of Advent, the coming, we think not only, of course, to remind us of the coming of Christ into the world, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us at birth, but also the coming that he has into our lives, into our hearts, hopefully. And then the great anticipation that everyone will see and everyone will realize someday without a shadow of a doubt is the return of Christ, his coming uh, again. All of it revolves around a promise and a person. That's good news because there are lots of places where we could point to that are bad news in the world. Uh, that's true of every generation. Don't, don't make it sound like we're somehow the victim of, you know, uh, you know, bad media or big problems that no generation or no other country or no other culture have had. I don't think I need to elaborate that on too, too much. Last week I was preaching up in Cambridge at, uh, at Christ the King Presbyterian, and I said at the beginning, you know, just to say the obvious, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, if your life's ambition was to grow up and be a conspiracy theorist, it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> they got the joke too. I'm glad you did. Um, what, one, you know, from time to time, I like to just, just at a random time on a random uh, website, just go and check and see. I don't read a whole lot of news. This morning, I just went to ABC News. You can do this yourself. Every once in a while, I'd just like to see. And you could say, well, they're arguing because, uh, you know, sensationalism sells and scandal sells. And you could argue that, yes, we like to feed into fear, of course. But these are things that have happened. And this is the way that they captured the news. Here are the headlines today, this morning, that I picked up from ABC News. Uh, there is uh, a court uh, that says that there's a resistance of a mom who put her newborn in the trash. There's a Nobel Prize winner who's blasting uh, Vladimir Putin right now in his Ukraine of invasion. Uh, there's one dead and several missing after an explosion on Jersey. The fifth teenager now uh, pleads guilty to a shooting uh, near a school. Uh, there's another headline. A man uh, troopers killed was hauling uh, suspected cocaine. A tense overnight violence was happening in uh, north, of, north of Kosovo. A French bulldog was stolen at gunpoint while walking, uh, while the pregnant owner was walking, police say. You, you, you get the picture, right? I, this didn't even talk about the news and the dysfunction and the problems and the struggles in your own family and your own workplace. The world, we don't need it. Every one of us, every person to a person could say the world is not the way it's supposed to be. The problem, of course, you can get the impression why people do soak up a lot of time, burn up a lot of time watching YouTube videos of kittens. After reading headlines like this, yeah, you kind of get it, right? We are all to a person longing. The world's not the way it's supposed to be, but we are not the way we're supposed to be. Every one of us, again, can, we can illustrate this. At times we have anguish in the darkness, and we have a longing even in the light. E even in the light, we have a longing. Let me illustrate further. Even in the dark days, we have 
this, this screaming you know, sensation that something's not right. We know that something could happen. If, if you're a person who runs anxious, this too is a great time to be alive, sadly enough. We think about that, right? You know, you think about in your own experience, there, there are times and seasons of life when a 2 a.m. phone call means nothing, right? When I was in college, a 2 a.m. phone call could mean someone's going to get Krispy Kreme donuts on a Poinsett Highway in Greenville because it was open 24 hours a day. Some of you don't know a Krispy Kreme donut. That's a good 2 a.m. phone call, right? But you know, and I know, that many of you are in a season of life where if you get a phone call at 2 a.m., it's nothing but bad news. Even when things in life are, are, are filled with joy and harmony and happiness, we're still longing for something else, are we not? Christmas is that time, of course, we keep... Uh, you know, through the decorations and the parties and the family gatherings and the exchanging of gifts, we're hoping that it will be a festive time. And there may be that very moment when we say, this is the way it should be. That families get along, that people are generous, that there's, there's a time for, for feasting and, and relaxing, and this is the way that it should be. But then again, we got to go and put, put it all away. We long for a time when it is Christmas all year round. There is a day coming. That's part of the reason that we just sang this carol that we've been pulling different themes from to preach uh, this, this winter. Come thou long expected Jesus, right? Even this morning we are, are going to reflect on one of the themes there. Many of the promises concerning Christ are found in the prophets. What we're going to read and go ahead and invite you to stand. Isaiah chapter 11. You can find it in the Pew Bible on page 575. You'll want it open. We're going to look at the opening 10 verses of this. Imagine this was written 700 years before the coming of the anointed and the promised Messiah, King Jesus. 700 years. Hear this. This is the word of God. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his, his roots shall be Bearing fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he, his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be, fill, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Why don't we ask for his help? Lord, there are mysteries here. 
profound mysteries, there is also hope here. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are, are soft, so, hearts that are, even if we showed up and we're so distracted and we feel hardened, that you would soften our hearts, that we would be receptive. We would respond even by faith. For Christ's sake, we ask. Amen. Where I grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains near Asheville, there's a place near Mount Pisgah. The Blue Ridge Parkway is a winding road. I encourage you to go find it someday. It's a beautiful drive. Way, way up on the Blue Ridge, just past Mount Pisgah, is a valley uh, 5,000 some feet up. It's called Graveyard Fields. As a kid, it's a, it's a favorite spot. I used to go, I would swim there where there's a waterfall. We would hike. We would camp out. It was a great spot and uh, lots of great memories there. I, I remember reading as a young man, probably sometime in middle school, the sign that's at the, the entrance as you hike down into Graveyard Fields. And there they, they chronicle a little bit of the background as to why it's called Graveyard Fields. And it's because a lot of the trees in the area were, were ruined and, uh, and, and uh, taken out by uh, some suggest it would have been a windstorm at one point. There was definitely a fire that made its way up through this mountainous valley. And, uh, and so there, are these, the, the, there were, at, at a time, there were these, these stumps covered in moss and you know, all these trees that are you know, partially destroyed. And at a distance, it looks like you know, these tombstones in a, in a graveyard field. And now I took our kids back there a few years back and it doesn't look the same anymore. Now there's tons of beautiful undergrowth and shrubbery and blueberry bushes and it's, it's a beautiful place. It doesn't quite look like a graveyard fields. Isaiah uses, uh, now it has renewal. It has, it has, there's growth there. There wasn't always that. Here we get this, this vision, right? There's visions of trees. That's definitely the case with the prophet Isaiah. It's often the case elsewhere in scripture that we find this metaphor, this use of imagery surrounding trees. In fact, I've always said that uh, if you're an arborist, right, Ben? Uh, if you're a shepherd, as a vocation, as an understanding, you have an upper hand. You have a better understanding of scriptural uh, an, you know, analogies and, uh, and metaphors in scripture. The people of God, the descendants of Abraham, uh, Israel, they are the people of promise. But there is a darkness that has descended even upon God's people. They're running. They're running from their loving creator. They're chasing things of the creation. They've, for, they've forsaken him. They've forgotten him. But he, as a loving father, will not abandon them. But he will discipline them. Not in the, not in the name of, of anger and impatience, but in the name and under the banner of love, God disciplines the rebellion of his people. The prophet Isaiah, not a real popular ministry he had, is conveying that message to the people. This is what is coming. The Lord will bring ruin. And by the way, it will be at the hands of your enemies that he brings some of this discipline. The Assyrians are going to invade. Uh, the imagery here is that of an axe being laid the chopping down the religious. But then it's the irreligious later that God says, even the Assyrians in their pride and arrogance take it too far. And God, the Lord Yahweh, will turn and lay the axe to them uh, as well. Now, 
in the wake, I'm trying to set a little bit of the context of where we find ourselves here in chapter 11. But in chapter 10, just prior, it is told to us in verse 19 that there will be a remnant of the trees of the forest that will be so few that a child could write them down. And then in verse 34, it says, just prior to our text here, chapter 11, that he, that is God, will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. God has these plans. They they aren't comforting. Uh, they're, they're, They're being used to rattle that there might be a remnant that would, of course, at time, in time, respond with repentance and and experience the renewal. But for the Assyrians, it's over. It's done. They will persist in that curse of judgment on them, not be restored uh, like the imagery later we see with God's people. That will require, of course, a ruler, a king, a judge. And that is who is in view, as is at least in, in the distant horizon. That's in view in our text here. So just two things listed there in the order of service that are the way that this promised anointed Messiah will reign as a king. He will do it in two ways, by ruling and also by restoring. He will be ruling, we're told here, with righteousness in the opening five verses. And then in the latter half of this, beginning verse 6, we see that he's also in the business as a king of restoring. So first of all, uh, this imagery of a stump. This, he, here he's ruling with righteousness as a judge. Of course, it's a very, it could be a very small, uh, seemingly insignificant thing that we overlook. Uh, that's where this start begins. There is a small uh, shoot that comes out of this stump. The vision that Isaiah has here is that from Jesse, remember, recall who Jesse is. Uh, Jesse is the one uh, who is the father of David. Samuel, we, we're, we're fresh on this one, okay? You get your Old Testament. If we were playing Jeopardy, uh, you know, this would be a great category to be in, the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel records for us that, of course, what happened? That he comes to anoint the, the, the king and he goes through all of Jesse's sons and, nope, it's not any of these. Oh, no, wait, wait there is still yet one other son, the least likely. It's the, the young uh, boy, shepherd boy, David, who has come and the Spirit of God directs Samuel to uh, to anoint him to be that king. Of course, that's why we, we even talk of, of Jesse and David and the genealogies. We see it. We'll read it. Maybe you already have in Matthew and in Luke. It's not inconsequential. It's not random that it's included in those genealogies that Jesus is a descendant from Jesse and from David. As our carol this month, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Joy to those who long to see thee, Day spring from on high appear. Come thou promised rod of Jesse of thy birth. We long to hear. So what, what are the qualities, right? What are the characteristics of a king? Is this really Jesus? The view here is of a, a, out of a stump, a chopped down tree, we see that there's going to be, that's a, that's a, a symbolism. It's not hard to imagine, Right? I mean, you don't have to watch the Lorax to know that when the tree's down, it's sad. It's not good. But when new birth, new birth comes out of that, uh, then, then it's a beautiful thing. There's life coming out of, of death. Here, here's this, this vision, a shoot, a branch that will eventually become a tree that, that's, that's branches and its canopy is for a blessing of, and, and it towers over the forest. 
What will he be like? How will he rule? Well, verse two, that's verse one is the tree. Verse two is how that king will rule. And there's mentioned three things. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. He knows that there's a problem. He knows and discernment how to fix this problem. He peers right into our, our hearts and he knows how to minister in a way of true empathy. The spirit also uh, that is there is a spirit of counsel and of might. This is a military term, not only a military term, to refer to a plan of, of strategy. And this is where we see the great capacity of this vision of a king, an anointed Messiah, who not only has a plan and a willingness to do something, but also the ability, right? That's, that's one of the reasons that we say a promise is only as good as the, the maker, the person who is making that promise. As well-intentioned as they may be, it's not only the willingness, it's the ability and the capacity to do these things. He has the might. He's not average. He's not adequate. He is the God-man. He is unique. Then also upon this ruler, this king, verse 2 also tells us this third thing, that he will have the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He lives in light of his father, God. There is a reverence and a holiness. We know with Jesus that he did not fear men. He did not live and bend and change and, and shift according to the opinions of other people. He was obedient to his or his own desires. He was obedient to the law of God. We, always, we say Jesus died for my sins. Don't forget Jesus lived, lived a perfect life. The spirit of God, the spirit. So the divine spirit was with him. He was anointed. Is this Jesus of Nazareth? You say, well, you just, Troy, every time you're just making a whole lot about Jesus everywhere we turn. I mean, you're, we're talking about places like judges and war and this imagery of a tree. Now it always has to come back to Jesus. Hey, listen, it's not my fault, okay? It's Jesus' fault, right? Because I'll tell you, Jesus, if you go and you read, there's this glorious passage. You talk about the times you wish you could have been there. You wish you, this is the ultimate mic drop moment in the Gospels, in my opinion. Here it is, Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four, Jesus makes his way into the synagogue. Of course, people are like, oh, who's that? Oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Hometown disadvantage here, okay? People don't want to estimate that he's the Messiah. He comes and he takes up. And we, we, we see this recorded in John 4, that he picks up the scroll, which was how it would have been in the synagogue. And the rabbi is, is shows deference and the people are there and he opens the scroll and he reads it. And what does he read? He reads this very passage, these very verses. And then he rolls it up and he sits down, which means I'm about to begin teaching in the rabbinical tradition. This is how it works. It's not like, oh, here comes pastor. He's going to stand up and open the Bible. No, in their tradition, it would be read and open. It would have been rolled up. The teacher sits down. And when Jesus sits down, this is what he says in verse 21. John chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter four. Today, it has been fulfilled in your hearing the scriptures. Oh. 
Do you understand the magnitude of what Jesus is saying? It's either true or it's not. But if it is, it's like the resurrection. It's a game changer. He's anointed. He's also made judge. But before that, John the Baptist bears witness that he is the great Messiah. And even when he sees him coming, inspired of God, of course, knowing, discerning that he's, there's, this, there's a dove that lands upon Jesus. The spirit of God comes upon him. Verse three here on our text, the prophecy says in verse three that he shall not judge by what he sees. You're like, well, then how does he judge? Well, you know, in the American you know, system, in our constitutional republic, we have this statue of Lady Justice. We have Lady Liberty. We have Lady Justice. What is this that's going on here? Lady Justice is that allegorical personification, remember, of someone, who, a woman who holds the scales and, and she has what on her face? A blindfold. Because she is, that is, that is indicative of how she would judge with impartiality. This is something that we want, right? We want, we want someone who doesn't judge according to perceiving wealth or status or power. L- Lady Lady Justice is standing there with the scales blindfold. Here we have Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, the promised king. It's almost as if when he judges not by what he sees, it's almost as if he has another sense. It's almost as if smell, he can just, his perception is so keen and dialed in that he at a distance can perfectly judge Knowing all things. I know, I mentioned a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago about the minivan smell. Young, you know, young parents don't smell the minivan smell, but, you know, when my parents, you know, get in our minivan, they just go, something doesn't smell quite right. They don't need to see it. They can just smell it. They know there's probably, you know, a stinky pair of sneakers or, or cleats in the back of our minivan and it just tips them off and we don't even smell it. The Messiah, King Jesus, rules with righteousness and faithfulness and has the ability and the the perception to judge with authority our emotions, our motivations. He, he, He discerns our real priorities. Some may say, well, why do we got to get in this talk of of justice and, and judgment? We don't need that. Okay, well, bear in mind that again, Lady Justice, in addition to a blindfold and a scale, has something else in her hand. Do you know what it is? It's a sword. And if you have been abused, if you have been deceived, if someone has stolen from you, then you know that you long for justice, for peace. It comes often through that justice. The promised king here has the authority to do this, not for his own gain, not for his own fame, but because he is the supreme and righteous one. He can fulfill the hope of Israel. He, this vision that Isaiah has here of proclaiming the, the good news to the poor, this is not about social class or economic neediness. Everyone in Israel is poor at this time. They're exiles. This is speaking 
of a poverty of people who perceive and know themselves to be needy in relationship to God. Dependent. It's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I mentioned this two weeks ago, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, the meek. So why? Because they shall inherit the earth. So those, those are the opening five verses. This is, a, this is one who is, who is ruling with righteousness. It's something we should long for. And if not, ask yourself the question, why? I'll come back to that. Here's the second. The second thing we see in this vision is, beginning verse 6, is a restoration. We know, uh, you know, in, in C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, it's under the, the, the Narnia is, is winter. It's a place where it's always winter and never Christmas. And of course, what, what happens in Narnia except the curse of the, the evil, you know, the, the evil uh, queen, the witch, and uh, it's always that way. But we're longing and we're seeing here, beginning in verse 6, a time where there's an exact reverse of any such dynamic, where it is indeed always Christmas. Sounds almost too good, too good to be true. I mean, it, it's, you read this and you're like, you know, there's little kids playing with cobras. Like, this is this is weird. It doesn't, doesn't matter where you live and what time. You're like, this is kind of bizarre. Did really Jesus do this? Can he? Wolves, lambs, lions, calves, tame children. Did Jesus bring this? Did his reign usher in this kind of, of, of rest and, and peace? Well, I don't think so. At least not yet. And you see, part of the dynamic of reading the Old Testament prophets is, is understanding how they would have been in almost a, a forward, you know, future thinking, looking, linear fashion, seeing things in a, in a plane that they can't understand the distinction in between. Does that make sense? So let me just say, even as Isaiah sees this great vision, it's almost like looking at a, a mountain range at times, right? Like if you're looking at a, a, a string of mountains, then there are times when you are seeing these hills, but it's really just a small rolling hill building up to what you see off in the distance, which is a great you know, mountain or peak. Sometimes I use this analogy. I'll take young children and I'll take two quarters and I'll, I'll hold up the quarters and I'll say, how many, you're not a child, but you're a student, you're perceptive. Young man, how many quarters do you see? One. But they're not. They're two. They're two quarters. But depending on where you're standing in your perception, you only see one. So there is a Messiah coming and you're thinking, but when Jesus came, that was still 2,000 years ago. We don't have any children playing with covers in our backyard. There is a great Messiah coming. There is, in view of, of the prophecy at times, there are kings and fulfillments that are partial but not full. They are already but not yet. That's part of what's in view here. Why do toddlers and cobras and wolves and lambs have this peaceful relationship? Because the judge is going to come and he's going to establish a new heavens and a new earth when the curse is reversed. What's the imagery about here? What's gone? When you talk about, when you talk about the lion and the lamb, right? 
or the, or the, or the, or the leopard here. What, what, what is that? It's, it's, a, it's a world, a place where there is no conflict. Those who were understood to be great enemies are at peace. There is no threat of harm. You can almost add to this list that there are viruses and pandemics that ultimately are harmless and unable to pose a threat. Illnesses, all gone. The curse that brought enmity, the curse that brought disease, all of that it was pronounced all the way back in the garden. It's mentioned here again, and then it's brought into fulfillment. This is a passage that the whole of the arc of redemptive history you could see hinging upon because it was in the garden that it was told during the curse that the serpent, that the seed of the woman who was Messiah, a God-man, would come someday and he would crush the head of the serpent. In, in essence, defang this cobra. This enemy, this curse, friends, Messiah has come. The fall, if you will, y'all, is begun. He will return to reverse the curse, make all things new, make all things the way they are supposed to be. It's why we sing joy to the world. He comes to make his blessings known. When that comes on a target, man, I sing out loud. Nobody knows. Everyone knows the words. Seldom do people know what the meaning. I'm like, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. That is great news. It's also great to embarrass my children. So far, that verse 9 tells us here in this prophetic vision that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Peace. Shalom. Verse 10, it's a, it's a peace that is a, a, a rest that is, verse 10, a glorious rest. Let me read it again. In those days, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. In his resting place shall, it will be, no doubt, glorious. Why is it glorious? Because evil is gone. Death is dead. Strife has, has ceased. Conflict is no more. Goodbyes are no more. Feasting and joy are present. The penalty, the power, the presence of sin is no more entirely done. What is glory? Glory is not just the absence of things like cancer and conflict. And yes, it is. Glory is not merely the absence of those things. It is the presence of friends and feasting. Yes, it's that, but it's not only that. It is communion with the Almighty. It is communion with God. And by the way, it's not only, it is for you, but it is not only for you. Now I want to drill down this. A couple weeks ago I mentioned Cornelius Plantinga Here's another great quote along these lines. He says, it's natural and it's healthy to hope for ourselves. But it's provincial and unhealthy to hope 
only for ourselves. Let me say that again. It's natural and healthy to hope for ourselves, but it's provincial and unhealthy to hope only for ourselves. Egocentric persons curve in on themselves with only their interest at heart and only their future in view. They eventually harden themselves into a small snail-like shell. It's for you, Israel. It's for you, church. It's for you. It's not only for you. It is for the nations. It's for people from every tongue and tribe and people group and nation coming to experience communion with God, the people coming from every nation. Now, I, I know there are people that would say, but you know, fine, fine, but I don't really need Jesus or, or spirituality. I just would like a little bit of, of health and, and peace and peace of mind. Not too much to ask. It was St. Augustine in his confessions who talked about his life. Food, drink, sex, pleasure. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Chasing those things. Chasing those things. It's a whole chronicle if you read the confessions of that journey. But in the end, thanks to his mother's prayers and the work of the Holy Spirit, Augustine is converted. And then he has this great quote. It's probably the most famous quote attributed in the confessions to Augustine. O Lord, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until it finds rest in you. O Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. Now, you, you may already know exactly what you need to do by way of application today. Here's how I'm going to close, partly because I'm hungry. <laughs> and I love feasting with you. I love this family. A few things briefly. The first thing I would say is resist focusing on just yourself. This season, any season. It is so tempting, isn't it? It is, a, it is a default that every one of us, if you hit the reset button, are, are, are made to flow in. Don't think of yourself only. There, there are visions in Scripture that are so much bigger, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing to think about how big it is, right? You ever go to the ocean? Of course you do. I go over the wall at Marshfield, and sometimes I just sit there. I try to pray. I feel small there in a good way. So don't just think about yourself. The second thing I would say is ask yourself, if we cannot have peace in the world, do I have peace with God? Maybe some of you haven't come to that conclusion. Maybe you're still hoping there will be peace on earth. There's not. Oh, but once I have all that money set aside and the right relationship and my health back or this or that, no, no. There will not be peace in the world. This side of glory. So I ask you, how do you have peace with God? I, I commend to you. I ask you to consider clinging to Christ by faith. 
to dwell under the canopy of this shoot that comes out of the, the stump of Jesse, whose leaves and, and fruit and, and life is so glorious. To be like this king is to fear God and to not fear people. For God, Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul says, was pleased to have the fullness of him dwell in him and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself, Jesus, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So that's what it means to cling to Jesus. It's to say, I need that reconciliation. I need to be forgiven. I need the good news. Third thing I would say is pray for the second coming. When this, the not yet of what this, in verses 6 through 10 in particular, offers up for us. That's the distant horizon. And... And here's the application for those of you who have not prayed for the second coming, nor cannot seem to pray for the second coming. I want you to ask yourself the question, why not? Ask God to show you why it is. Why is it this way that I'm clinging? What is it that I'm clinging to that obscures my vision of this? Why why am I... Not longing for that. Well, just, just wait. You just wait. I remember one of the first times that I got so drunk. And I, I, I was hung over laying in my bed. I've never prayed for the second coming so bad in my life. It was one of the first times. Sadly enough, I was a grown man. I should have known better. I was in seminary. And I wanted it so bad. Because I wanted to be done with sin. Not just the effects of sin. And the foolishness of it. And the deceitfulness of it. Just everything around it. Why am I clinging to this? Speaking of a vision, in case you even have any remote vision that Jesus, we're making too much of Jesus yet again. I said the full arc from garden to the prophecy, 700 years to Christ, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. This is what I'll close with. Think about this vision. Jesus is the one who again rolls up the scroll, sits down and says, I am the man and revelation, that great vision of the last day. These are the, this is the last paragraph in all of the Bible. Revelation 22, Jesus, I, Jesus, he says, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride come, say come, and let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Lord, come. Lord, come, Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.
John sees and describes earlier in that very same chapter, a holy city. The leaves of that tree in the middle of that city are for the healing of your little problems. No, didn't say that. The nations, the ethne. Full of glory, the nations. That's the not yet, but the communion can happen now. So let's do that. Let's take a few moments and pray.